You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Always mystify, mislead, and surprise the enemy if possible. And when you strike and overcome him, never let up in the pursuit so long as your men have strength to follow. For an army routed, if hotly pursued, becomes panic-stricken and can then be destroyed by half their number. The other rule is never fight against heavy odds. If by any possible maneuvering you can hurl your own force on only a part, and that the weakest part, of your enemy and crush it. Such tactics will win every time. And a small army may thus destroy a large one in detail, and repeated victory will make it invincible. Welcome to Portraits of Blue and Gray, Stonewall Jackson, Part 2. spring of 1862, Stonewall Jackson engineered one of the most famous campaigns in American military history. Commanding a maximum of 17,000 men, often fewer, Jackson marched up and down, in and out of the Shenandoah Valley, all the while confusing and confounding the up to 52,000 Union troops assigned to catch him. Over 48 days, he and his celebrated foot cavalry marched 650 miles, demonstrating unprecedented mobility while fighting five separate battles, with all but the first, Kernstown, clear Confederate victories. Jackson's efforts led to the capture of over 9,000 desperately needed small arms and a wealth of provisions and supplies. But more importantly, the Valley Campaign restored rebel morale after a series of defeats at Forts Donelson and Henry and New Orleans, and diverted Union men, resources, and attention away from George McClellan's campaign against Richmond. The Shenandoah Valley itself was of substantial strategic importance. The Virginia Central Railroad, connecting Stanton to Richmond, provided food and supplies to the Army of Northern Virginia and to the capital itself. As Jackson himself noted, if the valley is lost, Virginia is lost. Welcome to Portraits of Blue and Gray. This is part two of our portrait of Thomas J. Stonewall Jackson. In today's show, we're going to look at the Valley Campaign, the Seven Days Battles, and Second Manassas. The first and last of those three are high up on Jackson's highlight reel. While his performance of the Seven Days was probably his worst showing of the war. But before we get going, I'd like to send out a big thanks to all the listeners. There's a lot of podcasts out there, and I tremendously appreciate anyone who chooses to listen to this one. If you're enjoying the show, please rate and review us on iTunes, tell a friend, or send us an email to blueandgraypodcast at gmail.com, with gray spelled with an E. It's always great to hear from you. And one final note, we're trying something a little bit different this time. In this episode, quotes from Stonewall Jackson himself will be read by a special guest, my brother. We're hoping to spice it up a little bit, and so let us know what you think. 
Now on to Stonewall. Thanks for listening and hope you enjoy the show. In March and April of 1862, Stonewall Jackson's mission, received from President Davis's military advisor Robert E. Lee, was to protect Joseph Johnston's flank by guarding the passes over the Blue Ridge Mountains, which marked the eastern edge of the Shenandoah Valley, and to create a diversion preventing Union forces from consolidating for a push on Richmond. After Kernstown, which we finished up with last show, Jackson was in the Northern Valley, near Winchester. If pushed by Union forces, he was directed by Lee to retreat south toward Lexington and Stanton. Any major engagements should be avoided. Now, Jackson understood his orders, but avoiding contact with the enemy was just not in his makeup. The way old Blue Light, uh, as his men called him, do the way they said his eyes would light up in battle. The way old Blue Light saw things. If we cannot be successful in defeating the enemy should he advance, a kind providence may enable us to inflict a terrible wound and effect a safe retreat in the event of having to fall back. The great Civil War writer Shelby Foote noted the apparent contradiction in the character of a man who simultaneously preached love for his fellow man as a devout Christian, while also advocating utter savagery in war. Foote writes, He read the New Testament in his off hours, but did his military thinking in accordance with the old, which advised smiting the enemy hip and thigh to ensure the assistance of providence in inflicting terrible wounds. Unquote. Now, as Jackson described it to Anna, he viewed his army as an army of the living God, as well as of its country. They weren't just fighting for the Confederacy, they were fighting for God himself. Now, Jackson had hoped to hold Winchester, which is the most significant town in the Northern Valley, but the defeat at Kernstown meant that it would have to be temporarily abandoned. And so Jackson reluctantly uh, began a 25-mile withdrawal south toward Woodstock, Virginia. As the march began, one soldier remarked to Jackson that the Yankees don't seem willing to quit Winchester, to which Jackson, who had camped there the prior winter and was known to be pretty fond of the town, replied, Winchester is a very pleasant place to stay in, sir. Of course, Nathaniel Banks, who commanded the Union force in the valley, wasn't supposed to stay in Winchester. He was ordered to pursue Jackson. Because President Lincoln was concerned that the valley could serve as a a springboard for a rebel attack on Washington, uh, along with Banks, he ordered General John Fremont and his 30,000 men in western Virginia to march east and confront Jackson, while Banks pursued him from the north. Now, Banks' pursuit, though, was very half-hearted. He just didn't seem uh, overly eager to fight Jackson again. For 23 days after Kernstown, there wasn't any action. Uh, After moving south, Stonewall had camped just east of the Valley Pike at Rood's Hill. And for anyone familiar with the area, the Valley Pike uh, ran down essentially the same path as uh, modern-day Interstate 81 or U.S. Route 11. Take your pick. Now, Banks finally caught up to Jackson on April 17th, but Jackson had uh, decamped an hour before Banks' arrival and relocated to Elk Run Valley, uh, where he hid with the Blue Ridge Mountains protecting both flanks and the south fork of the Shenandoah River to his front. Having just missed Jackson, Banks reported to Edwin Stanton, uh, the Secretary of War, that scouts had confirmed Jackson was no longer in the area and, quote, there is nothing more to be done in the valley, unquote. Of course, Jackson hadn't left the valley at all, uh, as Banks would soon realize. 
On April 21st, Lee instructed Jackson to combine his force with that of Richard Ewell and attack Banks. Uh, Lee hoped to keep Banks and General Irvin McDowell, who was then at Fredericksburg, away from Richmond. The order read, quote, I have hoped in the present divided condition of the enemy's forces that a successful blow may be dealt them by a rapid combination of our troops. The blow, wherever struck, must, to be successful, be sudden and heavy. The troops used must be efficient and light. I submit these suggestions for your consideration, unquote. So it was a suggestion, not an order. Uh, but it was exactly what Jackson wanted to hear. Um, you don't suggest to Stonewall Jackson that he should attack if you don't want him to. So he had all the permission he needed to go on an offensive. Banks had about 19,000 men, and they were in Harrisonburg, which was a little north of Jackson, while Fremont was bringing 16,000 men from the west, though Fremont's army was, at present, divided into two groups of 3,000 each in the towns of McDowell and Franklin, uh, not to be confused with the Union generals of the same names, and a group of 10,000 that was still further west with Fremont himself. Jackson needed to keep the opposing forces com from combining. If he could keep them in detail, he had a chance against any single one of them. But if they all got together, especially if Fremont and Banks could hook up, then Jackson was going to have a pretty hard time handling them. To keep them separated, uh, first he would, he would move west out of the valley and fight the 3,000-man force in McDowell before Fremont reached it with his larger force. And then he would come back east into the valley Unite with Ewell's 8,000, which were staying at Elk Run Valley, where Jackson had previously been camped, and then move north together to attack Banks. The plan was going to require speed and stealth, but if he executed it properly, Stonewall could fight a series of battles, always having the superior force, whereas if the Union troops were at any point able to consolidate, Jackson would be significantly outnumbered. As historian Alan Axelrod describes it, quote, Early on, he arrived at a formula for victory, deceive and surprise the enemy, defeat larger forces in detail, follow up victory with ruthless annihilating pursuit, and to a remarkable degree, he consistently followed through on it, unquote. Now, Jackson had a distinct advantage over his Union adversaries in the form of Jedediah Hotchkiss, who had joined his staff after Kernstown. Hotchkiss was a geologist, uh, very much like Randy Marsh and more importantly, a cartographer from Stanton, Virginia, in the valley. He had an encyclopedic knowledge of the terrain and the geography of the Shenandoah Valley, and so he created topographical maps for Jackson that were far and away superior to what was available to Banks and Fremont or any of the other Union commanders. Hotchkiss's maps, uh, combined with Jackson's own familiarity with the valley, uh, being a local as he was, created a substantial intelligence superiority for the rebels, which Jackson did not hesitate to exploit. So the movement began with a fainted march east uh, to trick Banks into thinking that uh, Jackson's force was moving back toward Richmond. Jackson then secretly packed his men, along with 200 VMI cadets that he had picked up along the way, onto the Virginia Central Railroad for a trip west all the way across and out of the valley. The move completely baffled Banks. He was now reporting to Washington that Jackson had re-entered the valley when Jackson had, in fact, just left the valley. Uh, and this was after he had previously reported that Jackson was definitely outside of the valley uh, on his way to Richmond when, at that point, Jackson was still in the valley. 
Over the next few days, Banks would incorrectly identify Jackson's position no fewer than six times while moving his army north in an effort to escape a surprise attack. Of course, by moving north, he was taking his force further away from Fremont's and thereby playing right into Jackson's hand. Uh, by May 6th, Jackson's train picked up reinforcements in Stanton under Brigadier General Edward Johnson. And the following day, they marched for the small town of McDowell, which is now in West Virginia. Uh, and they were intent on confronting Fremont's advance force there. Jackson's men camped on a ridge outside of town, uh, while the Union troops, um, who were under uh, General Robert Milroy, were down in the valley below. Now, Milroy wanted to get the jump on the rebels, and so he ordered a surprise assault uphill uh, on Jackson's position, hoping to get, uh, get to Jackson before he could set his artillery up. It, it shouldn't have been much of a fight, given the terrain, but Milroy's men soon realized that they had a big tactical advantage by virtue of the superior Springfield rifles that they were carrying, uh, which had, had a much longer range than the Confederate smoothbores. This allowed them to sit just outside of range while picking apart the rebels. But it turned into a bit of a stalemate because Milroy's men couldn't advance close enough to seriously threaten the Confederate position. Jackson, at the time the attack began, was away from the army. So Johnson was in command in the field during the beginning of the battle. Uh, when Jackson did arrive, he ordered up all of the reserves, and the additional numbers eventually made the difference in the fight. And, and so the Yankees had to pull back. And by that point, it was getting dark, so Jackson decided that he would pursue the retreating uh, Milroy in the morning. Along the way, he ordered the mountain passes blocked or destroyed to prevent Milroy and the rest of Fremont's army from crossing over to join with Banks. But Milroy was kind of playing the same game, though, and he had his men start uh, a bunch of forest fires to slow the rebel pursuit. By the time Jackson caught up with him uh, four days later, uh, near the town of Franklin, Milroy's men were dug in and holding an elevated position that would have been very difficult to approach. So uh, Jackson, demonstrating that he, that he could show uh, some discretion when appropriate, determined that it wasn't worth attacking or chasing Milroy around uh, through the mountains anymore, and he had accomplished what he set out to do anyway, which was get Fremont away from the railroads in Stanton. So he headed back east to, as he put it, return to the open country of the Shenandoah Valley, hoping through the blessing of Providence to defeat Banks before he should receive reinforcements. Importantly, Milroy had pulled back a full 40 miles to get away from Jackson. So he was several more days march away from Banks, and it would be a couple days before he figured out that Jackson was on his way back to the valley uh, in search of bigger game. Now, the, the bigger game, of course, was Banks. Banks led an army larger than Jackson's, but only until Jackson combined with Richard Ewell's force. Ewell, who many of his contemporaries called Old Baldhead and described as looking like a bird, had been near Fredericksburg in opposition to Irvin McDowell. But Lee had arranged for a transfer of troops from the Carolinas after things slowed down uh, down there with uh, Burnside's attack. Um, he had ordered them to transfer to Fredericksburg to free up Ewell's command to move west to uh, combine with Jackson. Ewell was camped at Elk Run Valley, where Jackson had been camped earlier, waiting on Jackson per Jackson's orders, but without any precise information about his whereabouts. Uh, like so many of the uh, other generals and officers that Jackson worked with, Ewell was beginning to get very agitated by the lack of communication and secrecy. On the return trip, though, Ewell received a wire from Jackson telling him to get ready. They were going after Banks. 
One of the divisions under Banks had recently marched east to Fredericksburg, and that was in part uh, a result of Banks's own report that Jackson had himself moved east. So uh, without that division, Banks had made himself vulnerable. After issuing orders setting forth the demanding marching schedule that Jackson was going to require and making clear that any straggling would not be tolerated, Jackson was back in the Valley by May 15th, and he met with Ewell on the 18th due to Ewell's concern over some contradictory orders that they had received. Now, Lee's orders were fairly clear. He wanted them to attack Banks right away to prevent Banks from coming east. As we just said, one division had already crossed the Blue Ridge, and he wanted to create the impression that Washington was being threatened. Lee wrote to Jackson in his order, quote, Whatever may be Banks's intention, it is very desirable to prevent him from going east to Fredericksburg or the peninsula. A successful blow struck at him would delay, if it does not prevent, his moving to either place. Whatever movement you make against Banks, do it speedily, and, if successful, drive him back toward the Potomac and create the impression as far as practicable that you design threatening that line, unquote. But Joseph Johnston, uh, who was more conservative and favored concentration of force whenever possible, uh, he had sent orders directing Ewell to come back east. So Ewell and Jackson both agreed that attacking Banks while he was vulnerable was, in fact, the better plan. So they drafted a couple uh, CYA letters in case they caught heat from above, and Jackson referred the matter to Lee, who then countermanded Johnston on the authority of the president. And together they started making preparations to march north and attack Banks at Stanton, Virginia. So the plan was actually to march east first, leaving the Shenandoah Valley and giving the impression once again that they were moving to reinforce Richmond against McClellan. But after leaving the valley, they would travel north in the adjacent Luray Valley uh, with Massanutten Mountain, a 40-mile-long ridgeline, concealing the movement. Once they were positioned due east of Strasburg, they would come back across into the Shenandoah Valley to hit banks. Now, once again, the plan required uh, some intense marching with little sleep, as few supplies as possible, and barely enough food. As a result, straggling and desertion were a serious problem along the way, so that by the time they reached their destination, the total strength was down to 12,000 men. Uh, Banks was starting to get itchy, and he told Washington on May 22nd that he suspected Jackson was preparing an attack. Uh, Despite his suspicions, uh, Banks still had no idea where Jackson was, and he certainly couldn't have imagined that Jackson uh, had moved quickly enough after the Battle of McDowell uh, to already be sitting on his doorstep. S.C. Gwynn describes how Jackson's uh, rapid forced marches uh, during the campaign uh, baffled the Union generals. Gwynn writes, quote, They did not yet understand a general who virtually jettisoned his regimental supply trains, ordered his men to march without knapsacks or tents, and with only light haversacks and a few days' cooked rations, who was happy to have his men sleep on the ground, in the rain or snow, and get up before dawn and march all day, day after day, No commander in the war had yet done anything like what Jackson had done on a sustained basis. The following afternoon, May 23rd, Banks received a report from nearby Front Royal, where he had a small detachment, uh, saying that they were under attack by Jackson. Banks assumed that it was only a cavalry-hitting Front Royal because, uh, again, it just didn't make sense that Jackson could have already made it that far north and east after McDowell. So he didn't take any action until late that night after there was no doubt that Jackson had in fact arrived, uh, at which time he ordered a retreat to Winchester. In the meantime, 
The Front Royal Detachment was completely swamped, taking 774 casualties, most of those prisoners, and losing two rifled artillery pieces to Jackson. Now, the rifled guns were a nice bonus, but the real plunder came in the form of replenished rations and supplies, courtesy of the Union Commissary. The following day, uh, and now we're talking about May 24th, and I'm providing all these dates to express how rapidly everything was going on in the, in the Valley Campaign. So the next day, May 24th, Banks's retreat to Winchester was stretched out over several miles along the Valley Pike. The column included about 700 wagons and thousands of newly liberated slaves, and it wasn't very organized. Union cavalry managed to slow down Jackson's pursuit a little bit, but he caught up with Banks's retreat parade mid-afternoon near Middletown. Jackson's force, consisting of about half of his total command, uh, with the other half still with Ewell uh, near Front Royal, crashed into the middle of the retreating caravan, splitting it in half and obliterating the line. We'll let Jackson describe the devastation in his own words. In a few moments, the turnpike, which had just before teemed with life, presented a most appalling spectacle of carnage and destruction. The raid was literally obstructed with the mingled and confused mass of struggling and dying horses and riders. Most of Banks's infantry was already further north, closer to Winchester. What Jackson hit was primarily supply wagons protected by some cavalry. Stonewall made a mistake, though, in that he expected that Banks would have sent the supply wagons ahead with the infantry guarding the rear. Instead, Banks had sent the infantry first. So Jackson turned south, intending to pursue Banks' primary force, and it took him over an hour before he realized the error. And by that time, the head start and the rear guard fighting uh, allowed the bulk of the Union infantry to reach Winchester. Jackson's theory on the proper use of cavalry was that the only true rule for cavalry is to follow the enemy as long as he retreats. But after Middletown, the bulk of the Confederate cavalry let him down. They were engaged in looting supply wagons rather than pursuit, so most of Banks' infantry reached Winchester relatively unscathed. Jackson frantically pursued Banks with the infantry he was leading, though, driving the men until 3 a.m. when they were completely spent and unable to march further. A colonel serving under Jackson raised concerns about how hard Jackson was pushing his men on the evening of May 24th. To Jackson, though, it was tough love. He responded, I yield to no man in sympathy for the gallant men under my command, but I am obliged to sweat them tonight so that I may save their blood tomorrow. The line of hills southwest of Winchester must not be occupied by the enemy's artillery. My own must be there and in position by daylight. You shall, however, have two hours rest. Exaggerated news of Banks's destruction, it was bad, but it wasn't that bad, once again led to panic in Washington. And some of the reputation that Stonewall earned throughout the war must have been derived from his repeated perceived threats on the Union capital. Uh, scaring the politicians uh, gets you more press than just winning a battle in the field. But in response to reports that 20,000 rebels were on their way, Lincoln ordered Fremont to save Banks with help from half of Irving McDowell's force in Fredericksburg to be led by McDowell himself. Once again, men were being taken away from McClellan's offensive to deal with Jackson. For his part, McDowell objected, 
arguing that he could never get to Winchester in time anyway, and that Richmond was by far the more vital target. McClellan also objected, denouncing the hypocrisy, knavery, and folly of the politicians. But the objections were overruled, and now a full 35,000 Union soldiers were assigned to defeat Jackson. But McDowell was right. He and uh, Fremont, for that matter, were both way too far away to help Banks anytime soon. And so Banks was left to fight the First Battle of Winchester on his own the next day, May 25th. Banks had his men lined up on high ground to the south of the town, with Jackson camped to the south of them, and Ewell approaching from the east. Jackson rode raggedy little sorrel, uh, which the men referred to as fancy, ironically, up and down the lines the whole time, rallying his men. The Union defenders fought hard, and they held out until their commander uh, made a fatal blunder. Banks was hoping to get around Jackson's left flank, but in doing so, he extended his line, leaving his right exposed. Jackson ordered a 2,500-man brigade, mostly consisting of Louisianans under Brigadier General Richard Taylor, son of President Zachary Taylor, to exploit the weakness. Over Taylor's objections, Jackson joined in the charge. At one point, the advance temporarily stalled, and Taylor, riding alongside Jackson, let loose a string of profanity intended as a pep talk for his men. The devout Jackson's response, and I can only imagine him saying this completely deadpan in the heat of battle, was, I am afraid you are a wicked fellow. But wicked or not, Taylor's colorful language managed to rally the men, and the Union line broke, beginning a hasty retreat into and through Winchester and all the way across the Potomac. After the war, Taylor remembered his time with Jackson in the valley, like this, quote, I had time to see a pair of cavalry boots covering feet of gigantic size, a mangy cap with visor drawn low, a heavy dark beard and wary eyes, eyes I afterwards saw filled with intense but never brilliant light. If silence be golden, he was a bonanza. He sucked lemons, ate hardtack, and drank water, and praying and fighting appeared to be his idea of the whole duty of man. Where Jackson got his lemons, no fellow could find out, but he was rarely without one, unquote. Quite a few sources comment on Jackson's always seeming to have lemons, which uh, it is strange considering the uh, shortages that were uh, going on in the Confederacy. Jedediah Hotchkiss, the map maker, remembered Jackson in his moment of victory at Winchester. Hotchkiss said, quote, as the enemy wavered and then broke and fled, he swung his old gray cap and shouted, Now let's holler! Unquote. The rebel yell followed as Jackson's men charged into Winchester. The townsfolk, the women in particular, were thrilled to be liberated, and they joined right in the fun. There were a number of reports of the ladies of Winchester, still wearing their kitchen aprons, uh, shooting at retreating Yankees uh, from their kitchen windows. In a letter to Anna, Jackson described the reaction uh, of Winchester's inhabitants to their uh, short-lived liberation. The people seemed frantic with joy. Indeed, it would be almost impossible to describe their manifestations of rejoicing and gratitude. Our entry into Winchester was one of the most stirring scenes of my life. Banks hightailed it out of town, covering 55 miles in two days before a night crossing of the Potomac. His army took 3,500 casualties, including 1,000 prisoners, 
compared to Jackson's 400. And Jackson helped himself to another prodigious bounty of war spoils, 35,000 pounds of food, along with 100 head of cattle, 50,000 rounds of ammo, and 9,000 high-quality small arms, and some more rifled artillery. But to Banks' chagrin, thereafter Jackson's men began referring to the former Massachusetts governor and Speaker of the United States House of Representatives as Commissary Banks, in reference to the wealth of supplies he had unwittingly provided them uh, more than once. Unfortunately for Banks, many Union troops picked up on the sobriquet as well. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. The defeat at Winchester prompted even more panic in Washington. Secretary of War Stanton sent an emergency SOS to northern governors, advising that, quote, intelligence from various quarters leaves no doubt that the enemy in great force are marching on Washington. You will please organize and forward immediately all the militia and volunteer forces in your state, unquote. And Lincoln sent out another round of orders. McClellan was directed to either attack Richmond immediately or return to defend Washington. And Fremont, still in command of 15,000 to the west, uh, and McDowell with 21,000 to the east, were ordered to converge upon and destroy the rebels in the valley. And of course, Stonewall's newest victory only added to the accolades he was receiving from the southern press for his high military genius, among other things. While removing any lingering doubts about his ability, if not his sanity, from the minds of his men and officers. Jackson's next move was to threaten nearby Harper's Ferry, continuing the effort to divert Union troops. But he knew he wouldn't be able to take the garrison there. Not yet, anyway, having learned that over 35,000 Union troops were now on the way to the valley in an effort to cut him off from his supply base at Harrisonburg. Both McDowell and Fremont were already closer to Harrisonburg than was Jackson, so he was potentially in a pretty bad spot. Yet he remained unworried. He wrote to Alexander Bodler, his friend and a Confederate congressman, quote, You can say to them in Richmond that I'll send on the prisoners, secure most, if not all, of the captured property, and, with God's blessing, will be able to baffle the enemy's plans here with my present force. But that will have to be increased as soon thereafter as possible. You may tell them, too, that if my command can be gotten up to 40,000 men, A movement may be made beyond the Potomac, which will soon raise the siege of Richmond and transfer this campaign from the banks of the James to those of the Susquehanna. The James, of course, is the river running near Richmond. The Susquehanna is in eastern Pennsylvania. Once again, Jackson was lobbying for an attack into Union territory. So Fremont was coming from the west, and he was indeed markedly closer to Harrisonburg, as the crow flies, than Jackson. But the problem was, to get there, Fremont needed to travel over some bad mountain roads that were in even worse condition than usual due to recent rain, and because Jackson had already destroyed most of the mountain passes uh, after the Battle of Franklin. After very minimal effort, Fremont concluded that he couldn't make it through the closest route, so he decided to make a circuitous route north that made the trip significantly longer. 
By June 1st, Jackson was in Strasburg, while Shields, uh, leading one of McDowell's divisions, was still 12 miles east, and Fremont was five miles to the west. Lincoln and Stanton repeatedly ordered Fremont to pick up the pace and attack, but he never quite got around to it, allowing Jackson to slip further down the Valley Pike and avoid being simultaneously attacked on two fronts. Had Fremont and Shields coordinated and acted more aggressively, they could have forced Jackson into a choice between fighting a larger force with another potentially on his flank or being cut off from his supply base. Instead, Jackson slipped right between the two of them unmolested and reconnected with the Harrisonburg supply base. Jackson arrived in Harrisonburg on June 5th and then turned east toward Port Republic, uh, where he again positioned his army in the shadows of Massanutten Mountain, and he turned for a fight. Fremont was following down the pike, but he was still in no hurry, and Shields was moving south through the Luray Valley to the east, uh, on the other side of the Blue Ridge, reversing the route Jackson had taken prior to his defeat of Banks at Winchester. Thus, for uh, Fremont and Shields to unite, Shields would need to cross the mountains and the south fork of the Shenandoah River, and there were four possible bridges for crossing. Jackson burned three of them right away, and then he held the fourth, which was the bridge at Port Republic, where the Shenandoah's north and south forks join. Jackson divided his force so that he had 7,000 men camped at Port Republic, while Ewell had 5,000 at Cross Keys, which was four miles north and on the other side of the last remaining bridge. Here, though, Jackson made a tactical error, and he had left himself in a potentially dangerous position. He had two enemy armies in the area, and his men were divided on opposite sides of the river. So if he lost that last bridge, he would be in a world of trouble. And sure enough, on the morning of the 8th, Union cavalry took the bridge, which Jackson had neglected to thoroughly defend, in part due to the death on June 6th of his cavalry chief, Turner Ashby. Now, had Shields' cavalry burned the bridge as soon as they took it, uh, Jackson would have had his army cut in half, with the river in between, and half the men completely cut off from supplies. And there would have been no escape route to get away from Fremont. Instead, based on Shields' orders, the cavalry tried to hold and protect the bridge. Uh, but realizing his vulnerability, uh, Jackson led a, a large force to reclaim it. Meanwhile, the Pathfinder, as Fremont was known from his days as a Western trailblazer, uh, had approached from the West with 12,000 men and confronted Ewell at Cross Keys. Fremont, though, uh, thought he was fighting 20,000 rebels, rather than the 5,000 that Ewell actually had in his command. So he was even more cautious than usual. He started with a six-hour artillery duel, without committing any infantry. And after six hours of indecisive artillery exchanges, Ewell got bored and attacked Fremont's right, driving the line back about a mile. Fremont countered with an attack on Ewell's center, but the rebel position there was covered by thick woods, so the attack was emphatically repulsed. The attacking Union soldiers had apparently picked up on their commander's hesitancy. Uh, the attack was uh, reportedly pretty lackluster. Fremont then withdrew in the evening, um, having taken 700 casualties compared to Ewell's 300. Jackson's men expected to withdraw that night. After all, they still had two Union armies on either side of them, both of which had numbers exceeding their own. But Jackson saw things differently, as he put it, 
As no movement was made by General Shields to renew the action that day, I determined to take the initiative and attack him the following morning. Jackson's plan was fairly simple. The rebels would consolidate and organize at Port Republic that night, cross the river, then attack Shields in the morning. Then they'd cross back over both forks of the river in the afternoon and attack Fremont at Cross Keys. Ambitious, maybe, but simple enough. Uh, They ran into a little bit of a snag, though, when the impromptu bridge constructed for the pre-dawn crossing proved too frail, and only one of the five brigades was able to make it across. Fortunately, Shields uh, had pulled back some of his men in response to entirely unfounded rumors that General Longstreet was in Luray. So the single brigade that crossed was facing only two Union brigades, Uh, so still outnumbered, but not as bad as it could have been. The Union right was anchored on the South Fork, uh, while the left was anchored a mile away at the base of the mountain, with artillery holding the high ground on the left. The rebels advanced, despite being at only partial strength, and were getting chewed up pretty badly by the Union rifled guns. Observing the scene, Jackson ordered uh, cavalry under Richard Taylor to burn the last bridge, so now only Fremont was left on the west side, and to take the artillery position at the base of the mountain, at all costs. After some pretty nasty back-and-forth fighting, Taylor, uh, along with some reinforcements from Ewell, managed to take the ground, leading to a Union retreat. With victory secured, Jackson took a minute to pray, and then ordered his artillery to unload on the retreating Yankees. By right about that time, Fremont had finally started moving, only to find Jackson gone, and the last bridge across the river a smoldering rubble. But he decided to form up for battle anyway, and ordered an artillery attack on what was left of the battlefield, mostly hitting the injured men being treated uh, on the field. Jackson found this quite ungentlemanly, and wrote a letter to McDowell in protest. So the Battle of Cross Keys marked the end of the Valley Campaign. Lincoln was no fool. He had wised up the day before and issued orders recalling Fremont and Shields. Honest Abe was still a military novice, but he was a quick study. And he was realizing that chasing Jackson had become a distraction that was simply not worth the trouble. Fremont and Shields, uh, having lost the confidence of the commander-in-chief, withdrew back north neither to hold an important command throughout the duration of the war. In his typical, concise style, Jackson described the battle uh, in his report to Richmond. Through God's blessing, the enemy near Port Republic was this day routed with the loss of six pieces of his artillery. That's it. That was Jackson's entire report. And I suppose I could have saved us uh, some time by just reading Jackson's report about the battle in its entirety, Uh, But what fun would that be, right? So after the Valley Campaign, the legend of Stonewall Jackson was firmly implanted in the Southern zeitgeist. The Richmond Whig reported, quote, Jackson and his army in one month have routed Milroy, annihilated Banks, discomfited Fremont and overthrown Shields, unquote. And for his part, Jackson was not entirely comfortable with the accolades. Uh, D.H. Hill remembered, quote, Jackson was truly a modest man. He would blush like a schoolgirl at a compliment. He was easily confused in the presence of strangers, especially if they were ladies. It was well known that the noisy demonstrations which the troops always made when they saw him were painfully embarrassing to him, unquote. And a British observer who met Jackson during the Valley Campaign uh, offers a more neutral assessment. He wrote, quote, 
His wardrobe isn't worth a dollar, and his horse is quite in keeping, being a poor, lean animal of little spirit or activity. He speaks but little, and always in a calm, decided tone. And from what he says, there is no appeal, for he seems to know every hold and corner of this valley. Uh, Jackson, of course, maintained that the credit for the campaign's success should properly be given to God. He lamented of the press coverage, They are forgetting God and the instruments he has chosen. It fills me with alarm. It was up to God to decide who won the battles and who won the war. So the most important thing was to stay right with God, to stay in his favor. And so he brought in guest pastors to preach to his men and distributed Christian literature throughout the ranks. Many northern newspapers picked up on the intense admiration of Jackson, portraying him as a ferocious fighter who fought with the self-assurance of a man who was convinced God himself was on his side. Some northerners even compared him to John Brown. Northern soldiers began doubting their generals, and Union officers, particularly the inexperienced uh, political appointees like Jackson faced in the Valley, had become intimidated by Jackson's mere name and presence on the battlefield. Jackson thought the best encore for his performance in the Valley would be to cross the Potomac and continue all the way up to Pennsylvania, Turn east and take Philadelphia. Give the citizens of the Keystone State the uh, same treatment that uh, those of the Peach and Palmetto States would receive from William Tecumseh Sherman two years later. Jackson biographer S.C. Gwynn sums up Jackson's mindset, accentuated by comparison to former classmate McClellan, with whom Stonewall would soon become reacquainted. Gwynn writes, quote, Jackson was the equivalent of an attack dog who had to be restrained from marching on Philadelphia and Baltimore, while McClellan had to be cajoled, coaxed, and sometimes lugged by Lincoln and Stanton every step of the way to Richmond, where he still had not managed to mount an attack, unquote. However, instead of being unleashed, Jackson was summoned back to the defenses of Richmond. The Federals were no longer allowing themselves to be distracted, so it was all hands on deck to defend against McClellan's slow, cautious march up the peninsula. Robert E. Lee was now in command, and he ordered Jackson to secretly bring his men back east of the Blue Ridge. After receiving Lee's summons on June 23rd, and again, pay attention to the timeline here, Jackson rode 52 miles in 14 hours to meet with Lee at his headquarters, along with Confederate Generals Longstreet and uh, both hills, D.H. and A.P. Lee was looking for Jackson to lead an attack on Little Mac's right flank, the northern flank, which had apparently been left vulnerable. Due to some logistical difficulties and, and poor communication that was in all fairness mostly not McClellan's fault, he was forced to position his army straddling the Chickahominy River, and the portion of the army on the north side of the river had no anchor for its right flank, Lee wanted Jackson to surreptitiously uh, move his corps east, then march north all the way around the flank, and then attack south, threatening the federal supply lines to the rear. If all went according to plan, after the threat forced the Union Fifth Corps to vacate their entrenched positions, a, a full assault on McClellan's army north of the river would follow. It was a bold plan and required an incredible amount of coordination for soldiers uh, who were still relatively inexperienced and officers who were not yet familiar with their commander or one another. But if executed properly, it could result in the destruction of the Army of the Potomac. However, it would not be executed properly. As we'll see, some of the blame for that lies with Jackson. 
but when you consider exactly what was being asked of him, it's kind of hard to hold it against him. He had just ridden 52 miles in 14 hours, and now after a four-hour meeting, he was supposed to ride 30 miles back to where his army was camped, get them ready to move out, and then march back uh, within two days for an attack on June 26th. Now, Jackson's return to Richmond was not just about adding extra manpower to the capital's defenses. It was also intended as something of a morale boost for the soldiers and the city's population. In June 1862, the fall of Richmond had, uh, to many of its residents and defenders, become a foregone conclusion. The politicians were sending their families out of town, and the government was making preparations to send the gold reserves and the National Archives out of town also at a moment's notice. And even Joseph Johnston, who had been in command until his uh, recent injury led to his replacement by Lee, even Johnston arranged for a train to take him and his family away from Richmond. And this negative thinking had rubbed off on the soldiers, too, many of whom were beginning to agree with the politicians' outlook on their chances of success. But that started to change with the arrival of Stonewall Jackson. One soldier described Jackson's effect on the troops, quote, A deafening shout burst from our men. Thousands of throats took it up and rent the very air. It died away, only to be repeated with greater emphasis and volume. Stonewall Jackson, here, the genius of our southern cause, its very soul. What could he know of failure? The magic of that name, the prestige of his corps, was that the most doubting Thomas had no longer any fear, unquote. So it was no coincidence that Lee had chosen Jackson to spearhead the offensive uh, that would kick off the Seven Days Battles. Now, the weakness that Lee hoped to exploit arose from how the Union logistics were set up. Endless supplies were funneled south from all over the country, but they all made the last 20 miles of the trip on the same railroad, the Richmond and York River, carrying all the food, supplies, and ordnance necessary to sustain the Army of the Potomac. If Jackson could threaten that railroad, McClellan would have no choice but to pull back to defend it. Now, the plan was a huge gamble because by moving most of his men north of the river, Lee was leaving only 25,000 to the south to defend in the event that McClellan attacked the city. The Chickahominy was high due to recent rains, and there were only a few crossable bridges, so if an attack came, it would be nearly impossible to reinforce the defenders south of the river. But the high water was also an advantage because it would make reinforcing the Union right flank equally difficult for Little Mac. And Lee was gambling that McClellan uh, wanted to take Richmond via siege, not through an attack, uh, based upon Lee's impression that McClellan was looking to keep the bloodshed to a bare minimum. On the 25th day of June, uh, 1862, the day before the scheduled attack, Jackson's march was slowed by rain, poor roads, and inaccurate maps. Rather than the 31-mile march planned, he only moved his army 25, which was still a decent day's travel, but well short of where he needed to be. Jackson couldn't sleep that night and reportedly stayed up all night praying, leaving him only about seven hours of sleep over the previous four days, after having ridden over 100 miles. He was able to push himself without sleep for, for longer than most people, but um, like anyone else, it eventually caught up with him. One of his staff officers remarked, quote, For a while I was wont to wonder if the general ever slept, but I soon found out that he slept a great deal, 
often at odd times, unquote. And historian Alan Axelrod summed it up like this, quote, His disappointing performance in the Seven Days Battles was an aberration that was almost certainly the product of personal fatigue as well as the exhaustion of his command, unquote. Yeah, so you know that feeling where uh, no matter what you do, you just can't seem to keep your eyes open? Well, uh, imagine being that tired, but while you're trying to prepare for battle, and that's where Jackson was at this point. Uh, He had hoped to set out at uh, 2.30 in the morning on the 26th, but various delays kept him from leaving until after 8. The Union cavalry also slowed down the march by burning bridges and creating obstacles in Jackson's army's path. Jackson sent a courier to inform Lee that he was running about six hours behind schedule, but the message appears to have never made it through. Instead, Lee and A.P. Hill, who was supposed to hold off on his attack until Jackson arrived, uh, were left wondering where Stonewall and the 25,000 men under his command had vanished to. Hill was supposed to lead the first attack after Jackson's flanking maneuver got General Fitzjohn Porter's uh, 5th Corps out of its fortifications. Hill, though, got tired of waiting around, and at around 3 o'clock, he went ahead with the attack, sending his men directly into the teeth of the Union artillery and covered lines of riflemen without the planned flanking support from Jackson's force. Hill took an absolute beating, of which McClellan wrote to Stanton, quote, Victory today complete, and against great odds, I almost begin to think we are invincible, unquote. But notwithstanding his uh, feelings of invincibility, though, McClellan chose not to order any counteroffensive or to exploit the weakness that Lee had left open south of the Chickahominy. Instead, he decided to completely abandon his plan of attack and order Porter's Fifth Corps to pull back and withdraw the entire army to the shelter of the Union naval guns on the James River. McClellan euphemistically referred to the maneuver as a change of base, and that term would become something of a joke uh, among the men on both sides. Most of McClellan's officer corps, in general, were firmly supportive of their chief, but the change of base drew quite a few raised eyebrows. Throughout the entire day of the 26th, Lee, Hill, and the rest of the Confederate High Command were wondering what the heck had happened to Jackson. They finally arrived around 5 p.m., eight hours behind schedule. Now, the Union cavalry had a lot to do with the tardiness, as did uninformed subordinates, and it was Jackson's decision to keep them uninformed, along with inadequate maps. Now, in the Valley, Jackson could rely on the amazingly accurate and detailed topographical maps supplied by Hotchkiss. He didn't have those at the Seven Days. Richard Taylor remembered the situation, quote, The Confederate commanders knew no more about the topography of the country than they did about Central Africa. This was a limited district, the whole of it within a day's march of the city of Richmond, and yet we were profoundly ignorant of the country and were without maps, sketches, or proper guides, unquote. And when Jackson finally made it, he didn't attack like Lee was expecting. Lee's battle plan didn't explicitly say that Jackson was supposed to attack. Uh, He was just directed to get around the flank and take a crossroads. But everyone but Jackson seemed to think it was pretty well implied. So Jackson, acting wholly out of character, set tight upon finally arriving at the destination. Many a historian has concluded that Jackson had simply reached his limit. And James McPherson puts it like this. 
Quote, Jackson was probably suffering from what today would be called stress fatigue. Intolerant of weakness in others, he refused to recognize it in himself or to do anything about it, except to collapse into unscheduled naps at crucial times during the seven days fighting. The 27th of June saw more of the same. Jackson was again ordered to get around the Union right flank. To do so, his engineers would need to repair two bridges, but the repairs were delayed, leaving Jackson again way behind schedule. In the afternoon, Lee sent new orders to Jackson, directing him to watch the Chickahominy and contest any Union efforts to cross. Jackson interpreted the orders as meaning he was supposed to hang tight and hold the bridges instead of attacking. Um, But Lee and Prince John Magruder, who was leading the assault on the Union front that day, were still expecting Jackson to bring his 24,000 men into the fight. When Magruder sent a messenger asking Jackson uh, where he was, Jackson replied that he couldn't help Magruder because he had, quote, other important duties to perform. Magruder wasn't quite so impetuous as A.P. Hill, so he launched only a half-hearted attack, um, lacking Jackson's support as he was, um, and it didn't accomplish much. But nonetheless, the Union change of base continued that night, leaving behind a a good haul of supplies, uh, but the Bluecoats themselves once again escaped unscathed. For the second consecutive day, the Confederates botched the battle plan and did not prevail in the battle itself. But nonetheless, for the second consecutive night, the Union troops abandoned the battlefield, effectively conceding the strategic victory to the rebels. The next few days were defined by Union troops retreating back toward the James River at night and setting up defensive positions during the day. By the 30th of June, most of the Union force was safe under the protection of the naval guns, but a rear guard consisting of seven divisions was still potentially exposed. Lee and Jackson met early in the morning to plan the attack, which they drew up in the dirt with their boots. And this time, Jackson would lead the main assault himself, with A.P. Hill and Longstreet um, hitting the 55,000 bluecoats on the flanks. One of Lee's staff officers described Jackson's condition at the meeting. He wrote, quote, Horse and rider appeared worn down to the lowest point of flesh consistent with effective service. The mangy little cadet cap was pulled so low that the visor just cut the glint of his eyeballs, unquote. And once again, Jackson was delayed, again because of a destroyed bridge, which the engineers could not repair due to the Union artillery commanding it. And once again, out of character, Jackson didn't show any determination to find another point to cross or to create a temporary bridge, or even to let Lee know he couldn't make it to the fight. Cavalrymen Wade Hampton identified another crossing point further upstream, and he personally assured Jackson that his team could construct a bridge sufficient to get the infantry across. Hampton remembered Jackson's response, quote, He sat in silence for some time, then rose and walked off in silence. Unquote. And later that afternoon, uh, Jackson was found asleep under a tree, and he fell asleep again at dinner. He was completely spent, and he broke down from exhaustion due to lack of sleep and a high fever also. Of the 75,000 rebels who were slated to be involved in the June 30th attack, only 20,000 ever made it to the fight. And Jackson's absence was critical. Uh, the Battle of Glendale was more or less a draw tactically. But once again, the Bluecoats left the field after the battle, leaving a wealth of supplies for their pursuers. But more importantly, Lee and Jackson had lost their last decent opportunity 
to deal any serious damage to McClellan's retreating army. And the final significant action of the Seven Days took place at Malvern Hill. Uh, 54,000 Union troops, uh, with considerable advantages in artillery, held a more or less impenetrable position. Jackson described the field in his report, quote, The enemy in large force were found strongly posted on a commanding hill. All the approaches to which in the direction of my position could be swept by his artillery and were guarded by infantry. The nearest batteries could only be approached by traversing an open space of 300 to 400 yards, exposed to the murderous fire of artillery and infantry. It was fairly clear that any attack would be a mistake, but Lee, um, relying on an inaccurate but not altogether unreasonable uh, report of a Union retreat, ordered an evening assault. D.H. Hill famously said of the carnage that resulted, quote, It was not war, it was murder, unquote. The attackers took over 5,000 casualties and barely inflicted any at all on the defending Yankees. After consecutive days of fighting and the pounding at Malvern Hill, uh, many of the Southern officers were concerned that the army was not in good enough shape to defend against the next day's expected counterattack. A staff officer woke up a sleeping Jackson to see what precautions that they should take in the case that McClellan was feeling froggy in the morning. Jackson did not share his subordinate's concern. He replied, Please let me sleep. There will be no enemy there in the morning. And he was correct. Over the objections of little Mac's subordinates, no attack was forthcoming. So Malvern Hill brought an end to the Seven Days Battles and with it, an end to any hope that the war would come to a quick, decisive end. Despite Jackson's fairly poor showing, at the time, his performance at the Seven Days only gained him more admiration throughout the North and South, and indeed in Europe as well. The New York Times described how, quote, Jackson rushed from the valley at the Shenandoah and got in the rear of our whole army. He has evinced more genius than anybody on either side, unquote. And Harper's Weekly ran an article uh, citing Jackson's ferocity and fearlessness. And Jackson was just beginning to understand the extent of his newfound celebrity. Staff Officer Henry Kidd Douglas remembered a story that occurred uh, that July. With the Army camped near Richmond, Jackson and some of his staff visited the Capitol to attend a church service. And now this time acting in character... Jackson fell asleep during the service and generally maintained a low profile, so he wouldn't be initially recognized. But inevitably, some of the parishioners realized um, that they were in the presence of the famous Stonewall Jackson, and word quickly spread throughout the congregation. Douglas recalled the uproar at the conclusion of the service, quote, For a while he was cut off and surrounded and could not cut his way out. There was no relief in sight. The staff were run over and squeezed into a corner and otherwise disregarded, and were very little stars on the solar splendor of our chief. But in the end, we came to his rescue and got him out. Pretty girls tried to be polite to us, but it was too late. We would have none of it. Unquote. With the Peninsula campaign effectively over and the army in camp, Jefferson Davis made a surprise visit, popping into Lee's headquarters unannounced. While uh, Jackson and Lee were going over their prospective um, follow-up strategy, Davis seemed not to recognize Jackson, and Jackson also didn't realize that he was now meeting with the president of the Confederacy. Lee, however, 
recognizing that his visitors didn't recognize one another, cleared things up, saying, Why, Mr. President, don't you know Stonewall Jackson? This is our Stonewall Jackson, unquote. Another observer noted the reaction, quote, Mr. Davis started to greet him, evidently as warmly as those he had just left. But the appearance of Jackson stopped him. And when he got about a yard away, Mr. Davis halted, and Jackson immediately brought his hand up to the side of his head in military salute. Mr. Davis bowed and went back to the other company in the room, unquote. Now, other than Lee and uh, God himself, Jackson consistently demonstrated something of a disdain for authority. He it was apparently still holding a grudge over Davis's quashing plans for a northern campaign, and he probably also knew that Davis uh, had been behind Judah Benjamin's orders uh, undermining Jackson's own at, at Romney. But despite dismissal of the idea, Jackson had not stopped advocating for the invasion north. He wished to avoid, as he put it, repeating the blunder we made after the Battle of Manassas and allowing the enemy leisure to recover from his defeat. By this point, though, he had shifted his persuasive efforts to Lee, but he didn't think he was making any more progress with Lee than he had made with Davis. He described to a friend and fellow officer how Lee reacted to his entreaties with silence, though he added, Do not think I complain of his silence. He doubtless has good reasons for it. When the friend wondered if maybe Lee was just slow to make up his mind, uh, Jackson made clear that he was not questioning or doubting his commander. Slow? By no means, Colonel. On the contrary, his perceptions are as quick and unerring as his judgments is infallible. But with the vast responsibilities now resting on him, he is perfectly right in withholding a hasty expression of his opinions and purposes. So great is my confidence in General Lee that I am willing to follow him blindfolded, but I fear he is unable to give me a definitive answer now because of influences at Richmond. Despite the less than warm reception Jackson had extended to Davis during their meeting at Lee's headquarters, uh, on July 12th, he was included in a meeting called by the president at the Confederate White House. The purpose of the meeting, uh, rather than preparing for a northern invasion, as Jackson hoped, was to come up with a plan for dealing with a new hazard that had developed. Davis had learned that a new Union army was, was forming near Washington under the command of General John Pope. Pope had earned a reputation as an aggressive fighter out west, and Davis was concerned that Pope would move quickly for Richmond from the north, while McClellan still remained ready to advance from the east. Lee decided that they couldn't wait around and simultaneously protect Richmond from two Union armies, so he ordered Jackson to take about 14,000 men and march north to confront Pope, while Longstreet and Lee would stay behind to protect the capital in the event that McClellan should resume his attack. The new Union army under Pope, which had been christened the Army of Virginia, was uh, formed from some of the divisions Jackson had faced in the valley, along with some troops from western Virginia. Pope took command with an arrogant swagger that instantly earned the animosity of Southerners, and uh, quite a few of his own men as well. A British war correspondent described Pope as, quote, "...tall, corpulent, and athletic, with keen dark eyes and beard and hair black as midnight." General Pope had the air of a commander, vain, impudent, and not proverbially truthful, but shrewd, active, and skilled in the rules of warfare. He spoke much and rapidly, chiefly of himself, unquote. 
In a message to his troops, Pope announced, quote, I have come to you from the West, where we have always seen the backs of our enemies, from an army whose business it has been to seek the adversary and beat him when he was found, whose policy has been attack and not defense. I desire you to dismiss from your minds certain phrases, which I am sorry to find so much in vogue amongst you. Taking strong positions and holding them, lines of retreat and bases of supply, let us discard such ideas. Success and glory are in the advance. Disaster and shame lurk in the rear, unquote. McClellan and the Army of the Potomac uh, took offense to the obvious questioning of their manhood. Uh, Pope also made clear that he had no intention of fighting the genteel refined war that McClellan favored. He allowed his men to pillage southern farms, with Lincoln and Stanton's tacit approval, and issued orders allowing the burning of houses and execution of suspected guerrillas. Lee referred to him as Pope the Miscreant, and Jackson described him as cruel and utterly barbarous. Though, of course, uh, that was somewhat ironic, considering the ferocity Jackson had been lobbying for. Pope was commanding 50,000 men, but when it became clear that McClellan wouldn't be moving on Richmond anytime soon, the Army of the Potomac was ordered to abandon the peninsula and move to Fredericksburg to unite with the Army of Virginia, with Pope to take overall command. If combined, Pope would have 150,000 troops, and Richmond would have a serious problem. But under the new plan, Pope was to stay put near Washington until McClellan's former army had arrived, and that could take a while. So Lee and Jackson had a short window of opportunity to take Pope out. After Lee sent uh, additional reinforcements under A.P. Hill, Jackson was in command of 22,000, which was less than half of Pope's number, but sufficient strength to pick a fight if he could find a good target. The action began when Jackson's scouts found that the Union's 2nd Corps, commanded by uh, Old Valley adversary Nathaniel Banks, had been positioned in front of the rest of the Union lines, and far enough away that he could be attacked without bringing on a general engagement. Jackson's men were thrilled at the opportunity for another meeting with Commissary Banks, and Banks was eager to redeem his reputation after the uh, curb stomping he had endured in the valley. His men were looking for some payback too, so both sides were ready for a fight. The two armies faced off at Cedar Mountain, both positioned in lines running north to south, with the northern flanks protected by a wooded area and a large hill looking down on the battlefield from the south. The artillery duel started around 3 o'clock, with the rebels getting the better of it uh, due to superior positioning. Banks ordered an infantry advance on Jackson's left flank at around quarter till 6 that managed to penetrate the woods and turn Jackson's left. Jackson had been observing the battle in the center and right, so when he got word of the trouble, he galloped at full speed to rally the rebels on the left. Jackson found A.P. Hill, who had arrived late to the party, and ordered a counter-advance into the thick of the Union attack. Jackson continued to rally the men who had pulled back from the initial onslaught, yelling, Rally men forward! Jackson is with you! Your general will lead you! Follow me! One of the soldiers on the scene described it, quote, It was a wonderful scene one which men do not often see. Jackson is usually an indifferent, slouchy-looking man, but then, with the light of battle shedding its radiance over him, his whole person changed. The men would have followed him into the jaws of death itself. Nothing could have stopped them, and nothing did. Unquote. Jackson rode, uh, battle flag in hand, right into the thick of the melee, his men chanting, Stonewall Jackson, as they followed. Apparently, even some of the Union troops 
got caught up in the emotion of the moment and started cheering for Stonewall. Banks failed to reinforce his initial success, and the brigade that had flanked the rebels fell back toward the Union lines. Brigadier General Samuel Crawford, who had led the uh, nearly successful attack, described it later, quote, The support I looked for did not arrive, and my gallant men, decimated by that fearful fire, fell back again across that space, leaving most of their number on the field, unquote. A well-coordinated attack by Ewell on the Union left turned the tide, and Banks ordered a retreat with 2,400 fewer men than he had started with. It was near dark, and the army was pretty well exhausted, so the pursuit that Jackson had hoped for did not materialize. Banks received reinforcements from Pope the next morning, and so on August 11th, Jackson pulled back. Despite nearly having uh, had his flank turned, Jackson later described Cedar Mountain as his greatest victory. However, Cedar Mountain also resulted in a significant loss to Jackson. Brigadier General Charles Winder, who had been in command of the nearly turned left flank, was killed in the fighting. Stonewall wrote to Anna that he, he couldn't think of Winder without becoming tearful. After Cedar Mountain, Jackson pulled back down south of the Rapidan, and Lee ordered Longstreet to begin the march north to reunite the army. If they could move quickly enough to beat the Army of the Potomac North, they would have a brief window in which the Army of Northern Virginia outnumbered Pope's Army of Virginia, 54,000 to 50,000. Along the march, Jackson was petitioned by one of his officers for leniency for a soldier who had been arrested and convicted of desertion. Jackson had always seen desertion as a serious crime in need of serious punishment, though early on, he had held off on any severe penalties out of deference to public opinion. But with, with the public opinion and army policy moving toward harsher treatment of deserters, Jackson could now go with his gut. And so he responded to the leniency request by telling the requesting officer, quote, Sir, men who desert their comrades in war deserve to be shot, and officers who intercede for them deserve to be hung. The deserter and two others were executed by firing squad, and the next day Jackson ordered three more deserters, who had been captured by the cavalry, to be hanged from a tree. As we have seen, Jackson did have a kind, gentle side, but he viewed dereliction of duty as one of the worst offenses a man could commit. So deserters did not receive any mercy. By August 20th, Jackson's corps was back with the rest of the army, facing off with Pope's Army of Virginia from across the Rappahannock. Gradually, Lee moved the army northwest in search of a crossing point, but Pope shifted along with him and kept any fords or bridges well defended. Lee and Jackson found themselves in a stalemate as reinforcements from the Army of the Potomac began arriving. On the 24th, Jackson met with Lee at their temporary headquarters, which was basically just a table out in the middle of an open field. Jeb Stewart and Longstreet joined them as they poured over a map and once again drew their movements in the dirt with their boots. Eventually, the meeting adjourned, and Jackson left, saying, I will be moving within an hour. What they had been discussing was a plan to send Jackson and half the army uh, far around Pope's right, far enough that he could cross the Rappahannock uncontested, march north, then east through the Bull Run Mountains, and emerge behind Union lines, cut Pope's supply lines and threaten Washington, and force Pope to withdraw from his current strong position. Longstreet would stay put with the other half of the army, distracting Pope while Jackson marched, 
But when Pope eventually withdrew to address Jackson's threat, Longstreet would move quickly to reunite the army. It was a risky proposition for several reasons. Jackson would be an enemy-controlled territory with no supply lines, and the two halves of the army would be as far as 50 miles apart. If Pope figured out what they were up to, he could beat them in detail. Not to mention, they weren't exactly sure where McClellan was. If Mack had any kind of force in Washington, Jackson would potentially be putting himself in a position uh, where he had Pope in his front and McClellan in his rear, both with larger armies than Jackson commanded. But the potential to decisively whip the miscreant Pope before he was at full force was worth the risk, and Jackson was marching by 3 o'clock the next morning. He ordered the army to travel fast and light and to march as quietly as possible. They were ordered not to cheer Jackson when they saw him, as had become a, a commonplace occurrence, and so instead they removed their caps in deference to the general whenever he rode by. Everything was extremely secretive. Essentially, no one but Jackson knew what they were doing. Tolliver remembered uh, his orders were to, quote, march to a crossroad. A staff officer there will inform you which fork to take, and so to the next fork, where you will find a courier with a sealed direction pointing out the road, unquote. But despite the secrecy, the Union pickets on the far right spotted the movement and sent the information up the chain of command. Banks reported to Pope that 20,000 rebels were either looking to flank them or moving to the valley. Pope relayed the info to Halleck, but he concluded that they must be moving to the valley, and so he didn't take any, any action to address the potential threat. Jackson again headed out bright and early on August 26th, marching north, then east through the mountains, so that he was 20 miles behind the Union lines at Gainesville, Virginia, by mid-afternoon. A train returning to Washington spotted the rebels at Bristow Station, and so word of Jackson's movement was soon in Washington. The next train wasn't so fortunate. By that time, the cavalry had destroyed the tracks, causing the train to derail and a massive pileup of cars. The third train spotted the wreckage in time and reversed back to Pope's camp, tipping him off, too, of Jackson's presence in his rear. Jackson's next move was to take the Manassas Junction Supply Depot. Uh, Marylander Isaac Trimble led the surprise attack with a little over 500 men. Trimble easily took the station, uh, along with its incredible wealth of food and supplies. With the railroad severed, communications cut, and the depot captured, Pope was now completely cut off from his supplies. By the next day, Pope realized that the Confederate army was split in two, and so he determined to hit Jackson's half before Longstreet's uh, made it through the thoroughfare gap, which was the pass through the Bull Run Mountains that Jackson had used. And so Pope ordered his army to decamp and march toward Jackson. With the reinforcements who had already arrived, his strength was up to 66,000, and Halleck had already ordered another 14,000 from the Washington defenses to retake Manassas Junction. Now, the initial force of 1,200 that Halleck had sent arrived in the morning and marched directly into the teeth of the half-mile defensive position Jackson had set up. After seeing the Yankees get chewed up in three straight futile charges, Jackson waved a white flag and shouted, Surrender! Throw down your arms and surrender! They responded by targeting their fire at him, so Jackson called for the fire to resume. The attackers eventually retreated under cover of a, a few newly arrived Ohio regiments. Uh, Jackson reported of the event, The advance was made with great spirit and determination and under a leader worthy of a better cause. 
With the attack thrown back, Jackson's men could enjoy the hundreds of railroad cars and warehouses filled with food and supplies, um, unimaginable to the shorthanded rebels. The men gathered up as much as they could carry and completely pigged out and uh, replaced their shoes and clothes. A witness remarked, quote, when these half-starved men sang songs of merriment and danced around their campfires, eating lobster salad and drinking Rhine wine, the scene was ludicrous in the extreme, unquote. Jackson allowed his men uh, to help themselves to anything that they wanted, except the whiskey and the medicine. Of the booze, Jackson remarked, I fear that liquor more than General Pope's army. Jackson rarely drank, and he did his best to discourage his men from imbibing. But it wasn't exactly because he disliked alcohol altogether. It was because he liked it too much. As he put it, I am the fondest man of liquor in this army, and if I had indulged my appetite, I would have been a drunkard. But liquors are not good for me. I question whether they are much good to anyone. At any rate, I rarely touch them. Now, Yule and his three brigades had missed the party at Manassas Station. Jackson had left them at Bristow Station uh, to watch out for Pope's response, and when it came, slow it down. It came in the form of fighting Joe Hooker with 5,000 men. Yule's force uh, slowed Hooker down enough to allow Jackson's men uh, to finish loading up and burn the rest of the supplies at the depot. Pope was still on the move, hoping to trap and destroy Jackson uh, while he was still at Manassas Junction. Pope told his men on the 28th of August, quote, If you march promptly and rapidly, we shall bag the whole crowd. The first Union division arrived at Manassas Junction around noon, but found Jackson had already disappeared. All that was left uh, was the mess from the train wrecks and the remains of the burned-out depot. Pope ordered his men hither and yon in a disorganized search for Jackson, hoping to find him before he could combine with Longstreet, who Pope had learned was getting close to Thoroughfare Gap. And it probably would have made sense for Jackson to withdraw and, re and rejoin Longstreet after wrecking the supply depot and forcing Pope out of his position, you know, quit while he was ahead. Uh, but instead, he had set up shop at a, a tremendously strong defensive position that he had remembered from the Battle of First Manassas. He had his 24,000 men positioned along a two-mile unfinished railroad, covered by woods, close enough to the gap to combine with Longstreet when he arrived. Jackson again ordered his men to keep quiet uh, so they, they could get the drop on Pope. It was another risky move since Pope had him outnumbered nearly three to one, but Jackson measured it as an acceptable risk. Henry Kidd Douglas admiringly remembered uh, Stonewall's tolerance for calculated risks. Douglas wrote, quote, He mingled with his boldness, great prudence, and judgment. He never went so far into danger that he could not get out again. If he played war as poker, he knew exactly when to bluff and against whom. Consequently, he was never beaten, unquote. And D.H. Hill added, quote, He knew the situation perfectly, the geography and the topography of the country, the character of the officers opposed to him, the number and material of his troops. He never joined battle without a thorough personal reconnaissance of the field. By the afternoon of the 28th, Jackson learned that Longstreet was only 12 miles away, much to his relief. Four Union brigades, including the Iron Brigade in its debut fight, uh, were the first Union force to find Jackson, though they initially thought that they were only facing cavalry um, because Pope had told his commanders that Jackson was a few miles away in Centerville. S.C. Gwynn describes the encounter, quote, 
What followed was an old-fashioned slugfest, a powder-scorched prize fight in which the fighters, initially the Iron Brigade against the Stonewall Brigade, stood toe-to-toe, neither side seeking shelter or retreat, unquote. And they fought it out for well over an hour until it started to get dark. That night, the Federals pulled back to rejoin with Pope and, and let him know that they had found the elusive Jackson. Pope expected that Jackson would pull back now that he had been located, but Jackson stayed put hoping for an attack from Pope's whole army the next morning. Pope was playing right into Jackson's hand, uh, looking for a quick victory over Jackson when, uh, with a little patience, he he would have had a vastly superior army in a matter of days. Pope's plan uh, for the next day, August 29th, was to feint at Jackson's left and center and have Fitz John Porter uh, deliver a heavy blow on the right. Uh, Due to some poor communication, Porter never made it to the fight, But he still ended up having a significant impact on the battle. You see, Longstreet and Lee uh, arrived at around 10 a.m., and with Jeb Stewart acting as a guide, their force was soon positioned on Jackson's right, creating an an L-shape, with Jackson's line running east to west and Longstreet's uh, north to southwest from Jackson's right flank. And the coordination involved in covertly bringing the armies together was light years better than how things worked at the Seven Days. Longstreet was concealed in the woods, much like Jackson's men had been, so uh, Pope didn't realize they were there. Still thinking he was fighting only Jackson, Pope ordered successive attacks at different locations on Jackson's lines throughout the day, foreshadowing McClellan's tactics at Antietam. But by attacking at one spot at a time, he allowed Jackson to shift his strength to address each assault in turn. For four hours, Pope's men repeatedly attacked Jackson's covered positions, taking heavy losses, but gaining no ground. Meanwhile, Longstreet and Lee patiently waited for precisely the right moment to unleash their surprise attack. What kept them from doing that, though, was Fitz John Porter, whose corps was supposed to be attacking Jackson's right, but instead was in a holding pattern off to Longstreet's right. So if Longstreet attacked Pope, he would have Porter on his flank. And likewise, had Porter made it to the battle, uh, he would have set himself up to get flanked by Longstreet. So uh, with Longstreet not ready to join the fight, Jackson was left to take the brunt of Pope's attack. And it was a sustained assault with fierce fighting, uh, particularly on the left where A.P. Hill commanded. Hill's line held, but it was beginning to weaken under the nonstop onslaught. So Hill informed Jackson that he didn't believe his line could hold against another assault. And Jackson reassured him. General, your men have done nobly. If you are attacked again, you will beat the enemy back. The attack came, and the line probably would have broken, uh, which would have completely compromised the entire rebel position. But for nick-of-time reinforcements in the form of 2,500 men under Jubal Early. After the attack had been thrown back by Early's men, Hill messaged Jackson through a courier, quote, General Hill presents his compliments and says the attack of the enemy was repulsed. And Jackson responded, Tell him I knew he would do it. Porter never received the message that he was supposed to be attacking Jackson's right until well into the evening. And by that time, he decided it was too late. Uh, Pope would later blame the loss on Porter, and and Porter would even be court-martialed and relieved of command due to his failure to follow Pope's confusing orders. That evening, Pope sent three brigades marching west to pursue the retreating rebels. Yeah, for some reason, he had concluded that Stonewall Jackson was retreating. 
His report to Halleck stated that Jackson had been driven from the field and was on the run toward the mountains. So the three brigades pursuing Jackson's non-existent retreat ran directly into Longstreet's still-hidden lines, and they took a little bit of a beating for the trouble. But still, Pope did not figure out that Longstreet had arrived. Um, That night, Porter, uh, having learned of Longstreet's presence, told Pope that a large rebel force was on the Union left, and multiple other reports uh, went up the Union chain of command saying that Longstreet had passed through Thoroughfare Gap and set up shop connected to Jackson's right. But Pope ignored them. Uh, He concluded that if Longstreet had made it through the Gap, it was only to cover Jackson's retreat. So I think we all know what this is building up to. Uh, The following morning, August 30th, Pope convinced himself that the battle was already basically won, and that all that was left was to pursue the withdrawing rebels. But of course, it didn't take long for the skirmishers out front to realize that Jackson hadn't moved an inch. Uh, Finally accepting that Jackson was still there, Pope ordered an attack on Jackson's right, directly in front of Longstreet's lines. Longstreet remembered, quote, Evidently, Pope supposed I was gone, as he ignored me entirely. His whole army seemed to surge up against Jackson as if to crush him with an overwhelming mass. I could plainly see the Federals as they rushed in heavy masses against the obstinate rank of the Confederates. And Jackson recalled of the attack, As one line was repulsed, another took its place and pressed forward, as if determined by force of numbers and fury of assault to drive us from our positions. So impetuous and well-sustained were those onslaughts as to induce me to send to the commanding general for reinforcements. But instead of sending reinforcements, Longstreet opened up with his artillery straight into the left flank of the Union attackers, completely annihilating Pope's line and leaving Jackson wide open for a counterattack into the chaos of the panicked retreat. And we'll let Jackson describe how that went. The Federals gave way before our troops fell back into disorder and fled precipitately, leaving the dead and wounded on the field. During their retreat, the artillery opened with destructive power upon the fugitive masses. McDowell ordered up 7,000 men from the Union reserves to stop the rout. But with those reserves moved, the Union left was now completely unprotected from an attack by Longstreet. And so finally, after patiently waiting for nearly two days, Longstreet's 25,000-man force was unleashed, rolling up the Union left flank. A stand on Henry Hill prevented the complete destruction of Pope's army. Jackson ordered pursuit, but successful rearguard fighting and a stalemate at the Battle of Chantilly, uh, fought the following day in the midst of a terrible thunderstorm, allowed Pope's army to pull back to Alexandria, completely demoralized and having lost any semblance of confidence in their commander. Pope reported to Halleck, Quote, as soon as the enemy brings up his forces again, I will give battle when I can. But you should come out and see the troops. They were badly demoralized when they joined me, both officers and men. And there is an intense idea among them that they must get behind the entrenchments. Uh, you had best decide what should be done. The enemy is in very heavy force and must be stopped in some way. Unquote. And notice the passive voice. The enemy must be stopped in some way, uh, with who or or what is to do the uh, stopping not specified. McClellan came out to meet the men on their way back to Washington, and the gloom lifted. 
The Union troops wildly cheered the return of the man that they all knew belonged in command, and the officers were noticeably relieved. Now, McClellan, um, as you might suspect, ate it all up, and this would end up being important. Lee and Jackson expected, with good reason, that after 2nd Manassas, the Army of the Potomac would be completely demoralized and no longer eager to fight. But as it turns out, that wasn't the case. They viewed the loss as completely Pope's fault, no reflection on their own worth as soldiers. And with McClellan back in command, the federal troops' morale was almost instantly restored. So they would be ready for another fight much sooner than Lee and Jackson anticipated. Now, the loss at 2nd Manassas led, predictably, to another round of panic in Washington. Stanton sent the capital's arsenal to New York and ordered a steamship to be kept ready in case Lincoln needed to evacuate in a hurry. And the victory further bolstered the Confederate image in Europe. Southern diplomat John Slidell said after 2nd Manassas, quote, I am more hopeful now than I have been at any moment since my arrival, unquote. And a French foreign secretary concluded that, quote, not a reasonable statesman in Europe believed that the North could win. And the French emperor sent inquiries to England to see if the English agreed that it was time to officially recognize the South. But notwithstanding all the worry in D.C. and acclaim in Europe, uh, the rebels couldn't realistically attack Washington. And defended as it was by over 100,000 uh, well-entrenched soldiers with heavy artillery support. And they couldn't stay in northern Virginia either. The, the landscape had been picked clean by the two armies over the last two years. And pulling back to Richmond would just invite another invasion uh, once the Army of the Potomac uh, had had time to regroup under its preferred leader. So what was left? Well, they could do what Jackson wanted to do after the First Battle of Manassas, attack north while the opposing force was still licking its wounds. And that's what they would do. But it was not the invasion Jackson had foreseen. Within a few days, they would be crossing the Potomac, singing Maryland, my Maryland, hoping to win the favor and support of the locals. But they would decidedly not be, as Jackson had long advocated, marching under a black flag. That'll bring it close to part two of our portrait of Stonewall Jackson. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did, and that you'll join us soon for part three, where we'll start with Antietam and move through Stonewall's death at Chancellorsville. If you have any questions or comments about the show, feel free to email us at blueandgraypodcast at gmail.com. It's always great to get feedback or check in if you just want to say hi. Thanks for listening, and hope you enjoyed the show. If you would like to contact Portraits of Blue and Gray, you can reach us by email at blueandgraypodcast at gmail.com. Questions and comments are welcome from Yankees and Secesh alike. And remember, we always spell gray the old-fashioned way, G-R-E-Y. Visit the show's webpage at portraitsofblueandgray.podbean.com. If you enjoyed the show and want to contribute financially, click on the Become a Patron badge at the top of the main page to visit our crowdfunding page. Or visit that page directly at patreon.podbeam.com slash blueandgray. All contributors are wholeheartedly appreciated and will be thanked by name in an upcoming episode, unless you ask us not to. Please rate and review the show on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever other app you used to find us. 
Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again soon.